0: Turn in the word to Genesis chapter 18. And uh, interestingly, the, these chapters are going to look at Genesis 18 and 19. They've been kind of, you know, used to define the mercy of God, but also used to kind of share that uh, the apparent lack of mercy of God. And I pray that as we go through these Chapters here tonight, we're just going to get a, a more fuller and deeper understanding of the heart of God here. Look at Genesis 18, verse 1. Then the Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. And he said, my Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant and they said, do as you have said. So here's Abraham and he's hanging out where? By the the terebinth trees of Mamre. Now remember that word Mamre means strengthened, or fatness. And that's kind of, I think, a real picture that Abraham loved to hang out, sit out by this place where he's just being fed, he's being strengthened, and that all came from this deep fellowship and relationship with God. Abraham was a man that was greatly blessed. And and we see now in this chapter a further blessing that's coming his way because he's a man that's been devoted to the Lord. Now, it's not been without challenges. I mean, we left off in chapter 17 at the end with Abraham having to circumcise himself and all of the males in his household, servants and, and whatnot. So he's hanging out, it's kind of the, the heat of the day. It's noon right now, it's heat of the day. They would oftentimes go out and do their work in the morning, now he's hanging out and perhaps uh, Abraham is sitting here, maybe feeling a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit challenged, but it's here that the Lord comes and meets him in a very special way here now. There's three men that come and visit Abraham. Two of them are, are uh, believed to be angels, and chapter 19 verse one tells us that these two left Abraham and this other and went on to Sodom, that they were angels, so to them angels the other one we believe, as it said here, is the Lord. This is a, a, a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus that comes and reveals himself to, to Abraham. And we see this happen, this Christophany, this appearance of God before people throughout the Old Testament. In fact, there in chapter, uh, in chapter 16, we saw it with Hagar, I believe it's chapter six, yeah. With Hagar, this angel of the Lord, anytime you hear the angel of the Lord, it's a, another pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ coming. And so we saw that there in chapter 16. And now there's these three, the Lord himself, along with two angels that come and appear before Abraham. And so Abraham is looking just to minister to them and bless them. He wants to refresh them on their journey. And so it says in verse 6, so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly make ready three measures, of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to their herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. So remember, Abraham just says, come and refresh yourself, wash your feeling. bring some water, let me bring a morsel of bread, but now this morsel of bread kind of begins to turn into a much needed feast. It's kind of like when my mom comes over for dinner, right? She's like, what can I bring? I'm like, no, no, just, you know, come. Uh, well, and she comes, she shows up with her cooler bag, and this is like a magic cooler bag, because she'll reach in, there'll be like one plate of goodies coming out, you know? And then we're, and then it'll be like another place reaches in, and then again she'll reach in. It's like more. It's just like this endless bag of goodies. It's like what turned out to be like just come. It all of a sudden turns into this big feast, and she. I mean, I'm not complaining. I'm quite happy about it. It's like mommy can come over any right? And it's quite nice. But here's this now feast that's turning out with just what was going to be this morsel of the bread, and and I love this here, Abraham, right? It's like he's hurrying over to Sarah, his wife. He's like, hey, Sarah, quickly, right? In verse six, Sarah, quickly make ready three measures of fine uh, meal, knead it and, and make cakes. He says, like, Sarah, you gotta get yourself into action here now. We've got some guests here and listen, Two of them, I think, are angels. The other one is God. No pressure now, okay? But we're not dealing with leftovers. We don't want, we want you to just like bring out the best right now, okay? This is gonna be good, right? Don't don't be worried, don't be freaked out and pressured, but it is God, so you know, let's give it our, our best here. And that's exactly what Abraham is doing. He's giving his best to the Lord. Now, notice something here, and I love this. Abraham, who's at 99 years of age right now, is just booking it, it says that he ran to greet these three men as they were coming to him. 99 nine years, he's like in siesta mode, he's hanging out at the noon and day when it's hot, everybody takes a break from the work, it's like siesta time, and he, sees, and he just runs over to them, and he's like, what do you guys need, let me refresh you, oh my, you know what, a morsel of bread's not gonna be enough. he runs over to Sarah, quick honey, let's make a meal, we got some important guests, now. and then he runs over to the people that are caring for the herd, and he gathers now, a young, uh, a young calf here to prepare for this feast that they're about to have. You see, Abraham, is a man that is just looking to give his best to the Lord. He's not sauntering around in some kind of days, going, oh my goodness, three guests show up. Like, that's not what I was expecting. It kind of ruined my nap now. And, and he's like, no, he's not complaining, he's not bothered, he's not put out by this. He's excited and he's running. He's just eager to give his best to the Lord. And I think about that in, in, in my life. Maybe you need to ponder and think about your life. How, about, how, how do we do maybe in our quiet time with the Lord? Do we show that same kind of eagerness like Abraham is just thinking, man, I get to meet with God right now? Do we have that same kind of attitude or perspective when it's time to have that devotional time, that quiet time with the Lord? Are you dragging yourself out of bed to just spend time in the Word of God? Or are you running to the Word with joy and the thought of communion now with Jesus. When that alarm goes off, are you saying, good morning, Lord, or are you saying, good Lord, it's morning? (laughs) Because here's moments that we have, like Abraham is experiencing, to say, I get to commune with the almighty living God who desires fellowship with me. And I now get to come and spend time at the feet of Jesus, soaking in the very word in communion and hearing from him. What a blessing and privilege we have. And I believe Abraham is sensing and recognizing the high privilege and honor that is there before him. And he's eager and he's wanting to give everything to this. It's not just half-heartedly serving God here. He's going and getting the very best of what he has and he's giving the best of who he is not settling for just a morsel, but preparing a tender and good calf. Abraham wants to give God of his best, and I pray that we would be those that follow suit in that same kind of devotion, that same kind of heart that says, God, I wanna give you of my best. I don't wanna just kinda of saunter around and think, oh man, I gotta get him, go have some devotions, or oh, it's church again today, and oh. I pray that we're having an excitement and a joy for the privilege to meet with God and that we give him our best. Now, here we see Abraham and Sarah and they're they're just kinda keeping along with what was very much customary in the um, Middle East here of showing hospitality, going all out for your guests. That was a common practice, it still is today. You can go to Israel and you'll see the, the Bedouin camps out there and you show up and they're just bringing you in, they don't care who you are, where you're from, they'll bring you in and they'll just bless you. You know, that's what Abraham and Sarah are doing here. In fact, the author of Hebrews seems to be pulling from this story when he writes that verse in Hebrews 13 to, Listen, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some of unwittingly entertained angels. And in the New Testament, you know, in the early church, boy, they were aware, right, of angels uh, just always being around. And they were like, man, we gotta be on on high alert and just be ready to entertain anybody. We never know who's gonna be there. But remember what Jesus says, whatever you do on the least of these, you've done unto me. I pray that we have a heart that says, Lord, I just wanna serve, I wanna be welcoming, I wanna be hospitable, I I wanna be blessing others, and in so doing, be a blessing to you. But just what a great picture we have here. There's such a, a wonderful intimacy taking place here Now, in this meal, and in the breaking of bread, ultimately, in the sharing of a meal between Abraham and the Almighty God, it's quite significant that Abraham, in scripture, is called the friend of God. The only man in scripture that's given that title, friend of God, you see it in James chapter 2, verse 23, you'll see it in 2 Chronicles 20, verse seven, Isaiah 41, verse eight. What an honor that would be, wouldn't it? To be called the friend of God? See, many had walked with God, many had spoke with God, but only Abraham was known as the friend of God. And yet, that's the remarkable relationship that we've been brought in through Jesus Christ. Just as Abraham broke bread with God, Jesus has broken bread with us every time we come to the Lord's table and celebrate communion and remember the life he's given us and the life we have in him. We remember and celebrate what he's done for us and who he is to us. And you see, when we partake of his sacrifice and and likewise, when we take up our cross in obedience to him, he says, you're now my friends. Jesus says in John 15, verse 14 to 17, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I've made known to you. How wonderful that is. Do you realize that today, walking in devotion and obedience to the Lord, being in Christ, you're identified as friends of Jesus? How precious that is. What an honor, what a privilege to know that. Well, continuing on here in Genesis 18, verse nine, then, We read, they they said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? So he said, she's here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old. They're well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself saying, after I've grown old, Shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also said, dragon Abraham. I mean, I know I'm old, but look at Abraham too. He's not helping matters out at all. And the Lord said to Abraham in verse 13, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I'll return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. For she was afraid, and he said, No, nope. oh, you did. Don't try to turn that on me, man. You did laugh. Interesting scene unfolding. And what's happening here is that the Lord, again, graciously, is coming alongside Abraham and Sarah to kind of reconfirm that promise that he's given to them. He, he's coming to reassure them, to strengthen them in their faith, to say, listen, just as I've told you years and years ago, And as you've gotten older and older and older, I want you to know, I'm not done yet. You're gonna have a child. Just when you think, okay, now we're past the age of having children, God says, it's gonna happen. Sarah's 89 years old. See, she's looking at her condition and thinking, are you out of your mind? There's no way. And now, in her mind, she's kind of laughing, hysterically, almost, maybe mockingly, like, (gasps) come on. Who does this guy think he is? Does he not realize? There's no way. And, And she's called on it. She's doing all this internally, thinking nobody's gonna know, right? She thought this was done to herself, but she has the omniscient God before her that sees and knows all, even what's in our very hearts. Think about that. God sees and knows everything that's going on internally. And he saw that with Sarah. Now back in Genesis 17, chapter 17, verse 17, we read there that when when God was again kind of confirming that promise to Abraham, it says that Abraham laughed. He fell on his face and laughed. This is like R-O-F-L. He's like rolling on the floor with laughter right now. He's just like having a good chuckle. But this was not a laugh. Like Sarah's, Sarah's was a laugh of unbelief. And Abraham's was a laugh of just sheer excitement and joy at the thought of God doing something so marvelous, so wonderful. Sarah was critical, Abraham was thankful. So the Lord has to say, listen, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? What?" An important verse this is before us. Because it's one that we might grapple with on an almost daily basis, right? When obstacles come, when challenges are are coming our way, when we wonder if God is really able to help us in this situation, we oftentimes wrestle with this reality or truth. Is God really able to help me? And sometimes it's not so much that the Lord can do something, but we ask, will he do something? But what the Lord wants us to know is that he is able, that nothing is too hard for the Lord. Just like when he came to Mary, who was questioning, how could she ever have a child when she'd never been with the man? How shall these things be? What does the Lord say to her? For with God, nothing will be impossible. With God, nothing will be impossible. Don't worry about the hows, the what's, the if's. Don't worry about those things. Put your trust in the Lord. Say, God, nothing's too hard for you, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna rely on you. I'm not gonna worry about all these external things, how it's gonna, all the details. Lord, I'm gonna trust you. For God, nothing will be impossible. May we grow in confidence that whatever challenges we may be facing, that God is more than able to help and overcome. Don't be unbelieving, but be believing. This is serious before the Lord. He wants us to exercise our faith. And there are times, like he's doing with Abraham and Sarah. He's bringing them to a point where it's so beyond them that it's so clearly of God. And there are times he'll do that in your life, where he'll bring you to a place where you are wondering, like, what can I possibly do now? And God's saying, finally, you got it. There's nothing you can do now. It wasn't about you to begin with, it was about me and my glory. So I brought you to a place now where the only thing you can do is rely upon God. Don't fret, don't fear. When you come to those places, realize those are the places that God is all the more able to work because it's so clearly of Him. Amen? Now, like many of us, (laughs) Sarah tries kind of excusing this now. Lord, no, I wasn't really, I wasn't really unbelieving, God, I. I knew all along that you were going to do this. And he's like, yeah, right. you kidding me? I saw you weeping in your pillow thinking that this is the end now, right? Sarah's like, I didn't laugh. I don't know what you thought, but I didn't laugh. But God knows our hearts. He sees everything. And he's not trying to humiliate her, but rather draw her into confession and repentance and cause her simply to put her faith fully in the Lord. In fact, God is revealing that he is the God that works in the supernatural simply by revealing to her now, I heard you laugh. Yeah, it was internally, but I'm the God that knows all. I'm not just the God that knows all, I'm the God that is able to do all. And so God is revealing something, and I think bolstering their faith now by revealing, Sarah, I I heard you laugh. Yeah, you thought you did that to yourself, but, I'm there. He's the God that is working supernaturally. He's a supernatural God. So their confidence did not need to rest in their ability, but in God's supernatural ability now. Well, moving on to verse 16, then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Again, here's Abraham, the friend of God. You see, servants don't always know the, the purposes and the plans of their master, but friends are brought into that kind of revelation and understanding. And since Abraham is the friend of God, and he's the conduit of blessing, the blessing of God to the world, God decides to fill Abraham in on the plans of what is about to happen to Sodom here, and the neighboring cities. It says in verse 20 that the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So God is revealing himself here now to be a a fair judge. He's not just kind of whimsically throwing judgment down on Sodom. He's investigating, he's looking at these things. He's not jumping to wrath and and judgment. He's not wanting anyone to perish, 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us. God's got a heart full of mercy and he's not looking to be quick with wrath or judgment. And it's not that God didn't know. It's not like he's saying, listen, I gotta go and check out Sodom. I've heard some things and we've already seen that God's a God that's omniscient. He knows and he sees and he hears everything, he knows. But what God is doing, this is a way of showing that God was seeing and responding to the outcry that was happening in the city. The outcry, it says, is going forth. It says that their sin was very grave. See, Sodom is a city that's become famous for the sin of homosexuality, the word sodomy and sodomize, of course, synonyms of of this city. And, And becomes synonymous I should say with the practices that are going on in the city and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the next chapter but here's a city that's full of wickedness it was reported back in Genesis 13 verse 13 where it says but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord so now was the time for judgment as God had waited for the sin of the Amorites to reach its completion. Remember back in Genesis 15, verse 16, God says until the sin of the Amorites has reached its completion. In other words, it's that God is not going to come with wrath and judgment prematurely. It's gonna be so evident that they're at a place where this was necessary and deserving. So too with Sodom, it's like he's revealing, I'm gonna go and check this, it's gonna be so clear and evident that this was the time now for judgment that it has reached completion, their sin has reached that completion. See, the Lord would not arbitrarily destroy them, uh, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. As a fair and just judge, he would examine the evidence and then reward their deeds appropriately. The anthropomorphic language veils the ontological reality of God's omniscience, but the Lord seems to have been more concerned in this context with revealing himself as a fair judge, emphasizing the importance of human responsibility and inviting Abraham to assume the role of an intercessor. That anthropomorphic kind of language is just describing God in human terms. And so that's what's taking place. So we see here now one of the greatest prayers of intercession in the Bible, beginning in verse 23. It says, and Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I'll spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? So he said, If I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, Now I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed now, I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. It's like, no turning back now. I've already gone this far. I might as well keep going. So he said, I will, uh, suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. And he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak, but once more, suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. Abraham pleads to the Lord now, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? See, Abraham did not seem to ask this out of uncertainty but rather out of knowing the character of God. And this whole prayer stems from interceding based on the very character of God. It says, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham pleads to the Lord based on the very character of God. God, is this something that is in line with your character? Are you not the judge of all the earth? Do you not always do right? See, Abraham knew full well that God is not just the Lord over Israel, but the Lord and judge over all, and as a judge over all, he would do right. Now, there's an important principle at work here that God cares for those who are his. I believe this is an important verse here that lends support to the the purpose of the rapture, that God will not judge the righteous with the wicked. So the time of the seven-year tribulation is a time where God is pouring out His wrath and His judgment upon the earth. And I believe that Jesus is going to not have His bride, the church, go through that time. Why would He? Why would anybody treat a bride that way? Not to mention the specifics of that last seven years of Daniel's 70th week and who that's specifically for. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I believe that the rapture is important because that seven-year tribulation is a time for God to pour out His wrath and judgment upon the world, and He's not going to judge the righteous with the wicked. Now, there's two keys to this prayer here that we see. First of all, it was other-centered. In Prayer were to look to others and not just to ourselves. Remember when God told Solomon, "Solomon, ask anything and I'll give it to you." What did Solomon ask for? For wisdom to rule the people rightly. And he could have gotten very selfish on that one, but he prayed and asked for something that would honor the Lord and help others. Secondly, this prayer was very persistent. See, God wants us to persevere in prayer and not lose hope, but prayer is not about trying to twist the arm of the Lord until he finally caves to our wishes. Prayer is about having our heart come in line with his. Prayer is about communion with the Lord. As we commune with him, we get to know him more. Oftentimes, God will call us into a time of intercession simply so that we're spending time with him, and we're pouring out our heart to the Lord, but more so, so we can have our heart come in line with him and with his will. And that oftentimes takes persistence. Interestingly, Abraham started with 50. You know, not wanting to start too low. Not wanting to have God kind of laugh him off right out of the spot. Like, get out of here. You know, like when you're kind of bargaining with something. You don't want to start too low. You want to kind of start, give some wiggle room, you know. In this negotiating here, he's kind of going, well, 50 sounds like a good number, and then God says, okay, 50. Maybe Abraham's a little bit surprised at that. He's like, well, that, that happened quickly. Like he, he didn't even challenge you. He just readily accepted that. So he's thinking, man, I sh- maybe I should have started a little lower. He's like, how about we take away five? How are there's 45. God, will you do it then? Again, God says, yep, yeah, 45 righteous people there. I'm gonna spare the city. And then he repeats it again and he repeats it at 40. Now Abraham is gaining a little confidence. And Isaac keeps keeps negotiating, he's like, I'm not gonna go by fives, I'm gonna go by tens. I'm gonna step it up a notch here. I'm gonna see how God responds to that. Okay, 40, good, how about 30? Do I hear 30? Anybody 30, 30? And God's like, for 30, yep, I'm gonna spare the city. It goes 20, and then finally down to 10. Abraham stops at 10, it seems. And it seems that God could've, would've, even kept going if Abraham, kept going why did Abraham seem to stop at 10 perhaps Abraham thought I got my bases covered here see Lot had a family of six two daughters living with him two daughters married two sons-in-law there's six seven eight now with the sons-in-law Abraham's thinking well there's eight of them surely they've at least got a couple more now brought into the family of God in the city of Sodom. At least their neighbors have come to know God through their influence. Abraham perhaps is thinking, we'll have it covered with 10. Lot and his family being there, surely the city's gonna be spared. We're gonna see sadly that that was not the case, however. Nevertheless, we will see the truth of verse 25, ringing out through these events, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And God will do right. This chapter illustrates a progression in Abraham's relationship with God that is normal for those who have a relationship with him. God revealed himself to Abraham. Abraham welcomed God's revelation. Then fellowship resulted. They, they broke bread, they, they ate together. And that fellowship led to further revelation and a greater understanding of God's will. Then, having learned of God's purpose to judge the sinners, Abraham's response was to intercede for those under God's judgment. Great progression happening for all those that are in relationship with the Lord and in fellowship with him. David said this, it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to pray effectively for lost souls if one is not convinced that lostness will ultimately result in literal eternal punishment. And I think Abraham believed and saw the gravity of this situation here. So moving into chapter 19. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, hear now my Lord, please, Turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, no, but we'll spend the night in the open square. But Lot insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. First of all, it's interesting to see Lot and where he's at. He's sitting in the gate of Sodom. See, the gate of a city was where official business was carried out, and it was carried out by those that were in authority, usually officials in the city. See, Lot began this, this trek by lifting up his eyes and seeing the plains, right? Lifting up his eyes towards Sodom. Remember when Abraham and Lot had that kind of division between all their people and they they parted ways. Abraham said, choose where you wanna go, Lot. Where you go, I'll go the opposite way. And Lot looked towards the plains of Sodom, walking by sight, not by faith. And then he pitched his tent towards Sodom, chapter 13, verse 12. Then we find that he's in Sodom in chapter 14, verse 12. And now he's sitting as an official in the gate of the city. The progression is a downward spiral that becomes all the more apparent as we see the circumstances of this visit because two angels come and not the Lord. God stays back with Abraham. God was at home with Abraham, but God would not be at home with Lot. And it was in the midst of the day when they came and visited Abraham. It's evening now when the two angels come to Lot. The picture is one of moving from light to darkness. It's very reflective of the life that Lot was living. And as Lot persuades the two guests to come to his home now, trouble is waiting. The men in the city, both old and young, it says in verse four there, Come to call it the guest that they may know them carnally. That is to have sexual relations with them. It's homosexuality, and the Bible is very clear on where it stands on this issue. Leviticus 18, verse 22 says, You shall not lie with a man or lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Romans 1, verse 26 to 28, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. They went against nature. This is something where, again, homosexuality is something that goes so far from God's ideal and God's creation it says in 1st Corinthians 6 9-11 do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor homosexuals nor sodomites nor thieves nor covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God and notice I love what Paul says and such were some of you but you were washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. These things are not what needs to be characterizing believers. And it's sad when we see a list like this in, in Corinthians that says this is what's gonna keep people away from the kingdom of God, to see things like this now being embraced by the church. What is happening in our culture? How could somebody embrace that, affirm that, when it's those things that the Bible says very clearly is going to keep people from eternal life with God? Now, here's the thing. Sin is sin. I think we can easily, as the church, put an overemphasis on the sin of homosexuality. I think in part it may be because we've seen the push to normalize it and make this acceptable in our culture to such a strong degree but in the attempts of pushing back by the church we have at times come across as not loving and showing grace to those that are caught in this lifestyle and we need to be careful that we look at this sin as simply sin as we would with anybody as we look at anybody of these categories drunkards those that are covetous we will look at them and go, oh my goodness. We go, oh man, that's, that's not right before the Lord. Now we want to we see you, you know, come and be right with God. We want to see you forsake those things. We wouldn't turn people away. Sin is sin and we need to have the right response to people that are engaged in lifestyles that are contrary to the word of God. And we need to love them, but do so in a way where our heart and our purpose is to point them to the truth. Now, there are times where we're just not going to win. Where the church will just be labeled as not loving and accepting. But the reason we want to point this out to people, that it's a sin, is that this will keep them away from a relationship with God and eternal life with Him. That's the heart and the purpose. that always needs to be the heart and the purpose. Many you see some of the the ways that people go on the street and they, and they just call the sin out in a judgmental, in a, what's the word I'm looking for? Judgmental and, oh my goodness, it's right there. Somebody want to help me with it? No? You're like, yeah. condemning, there. Who said that? Thank you. Okay, good job. If I had a candy, I'd throw it to you. Yeah, we don't want to be condemning people. Thank you. That's it. Was right there. Couldn't get it out. But yeah, condemning people—we don't want to do that. As, as we've seen happen, we want to point out that it's sin generally that's going to keep people away from God and from finding life in Him. Life today, life eternal, but we need to have grace intact in doing so. But we need to speak up. No doubt. May do so lovingly and with grace. And I need to do the same for heterosexual people that are engaged in sin. I need someone to do the same for me when I'm doing something that is not right in God's eyes. The Christians ought not to set themselves above or apart from anyone else. We're all looking to walk this line of obedience to God's word. And I do believe that some are, can even say they're born with a tendency towards these things. But you don't just give in and say, that's just the way I am. No, you crucify the flesh as we all need to do you're not made that way by god you're just born into a fallen human nature and we're all born with a tendency to sin that's the plain facts but we must choose daily to follow in obedience knowing that god's ways lead to eternal life As a practice of sin the bible condemns not the temptation of it people may claim well i'm i'm is born this way well you're, you're born with a propensity to sin we'll leave it at that but now we got to say what is right before God and if something is not right before God we crucify that we lay that down say Lord I'm going to walk in obedience to you see we're living in times where this is becoming more and more of a difficult stand <laughs> if it's not having the church open against health orders that'll get me in jail, it'll be speaking on this sermon right here that'll get me in jail. Please don't post this on YouTube. Um. (laughs) But these are the days that we're living in now. Churches more and more are caving to the pressure from the LGBTQ community to affirm that lifestyle. In fact, just um, in the last week, a pastor in Regina, Saskatchewan is being sued for a sermon that he preached on March 6th of this year, where he taught just simply on the biblical view of sexuality. And, and, and they, the, the LGBTQ community just rallied together in, in, in support to come against this man, and in a, in a strong way in the community. See, the enemy is wanting more and more to normalize what the Bible says is sin, and to make what the Bible says is right, to make it evil. That's the days that we're living in now. If somebody sent me this quote here today, a friend of mine, I thought it fit in very well. First, we overlook evil, then we permit evil, then we legalize evil, then we promote evil, then we celebrate evil, then we persecute those who still call it evil. These are the days that we're living in. If Anybody watched the Grammys on Sunday? I did not, but I saw The celebration of evil, where people will be quick to condemn that which is good, but yet celebrate the evil and criticize those that might call it for what it is. See, we need to stand our ground and uphold God's truth, but we must do so in love and out of love. It's for the rescue of souls that we call out what is sin to anyone that's engaged in a lifestyle of it. Not picking on one, but it's sin we call it out we address it in love for the rescue of souls so verse 6 lot so lot went out to them through the doorway shut the door behind them and said please my brethren do not do so do not do so wickedly see now I have two daughters who have not known a man please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish only do nothing to these men since this is the reason they've come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. And then they said, this one came in to stay here and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. So they became weary trying to find the door. Now, it's very shocking when you think of Lot being willing to offer his daughters out there. Now, some have said that the custom of this day was that when you bring a guest into your house, you protect them more than you would even your own family or yourself. And we saw that happen elsewhere in the Bible where a similar situation happened, but I believe too that what we're seeing with Lot is just that, that slippery slope of Sodom, where he is now progressing downward, where the choices that he's made have just gone from bad to worse. And now there's no longer protection of his family here. He's willing to offer them up. But these men step in, these angels step in, and they blind now these people that were coming against Lot. And it says, notice this, it says that they at the end of verse 11, that they became weary trying to find the door. Now that's kind of alarming, because you don't hear that they suddenly panicked that they were now blind. No, they continued on with unrestrained sin, with this lust coursing through their veins. All they can think of is enacting on this impulse of sin. They're not going, oh my goodness, I'm blind, somebody lead me home. They're clawing at the door to try to continue on in this. Their physical blindness now matched the moral and spiritual blindness of these people here in Sodom. Well, verse 12, Then the men said a lot, have you anyone else here? son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whoever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place because the outcry against him has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. Verse 15, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, arise, Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. So here's Lot now. Trying to get whoever he can on the city goes to his sons in laws. Not living at home. Apparently he's got two other daughters there. And sons in law think he's just joking. Oh, come on, Lot, what are you talking about? The place gonna be destroyed. There's no way. Man, the city's vibrant. Look at all that's going on. No way it's gonna be destroyed. They just thought he's joking. It seems Lot's influence in their lives has been a non factor. Sadly. But notice this here in verse 16. I think this is so wonderful. It says, in the middle there, the Lord being merciful to him. Man, that verse should bring hope and encouragement to all of us. It's the first time this word mercy is used in scripture. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Not getting what we deserve. See, what we deserve... Because of our sin and guilt, we deserve death. Lot deserved to be destroyed in the city. But out of God's mercy, out of his love, his grace, God plucks Lot out. It says that they took him by the hand and led him out. God so faithfully often takes us by the hand and leads us out of that which we often deserve, doing so all by his mercy towards us. Now in all this, again, in verse 16, it's kind of shocking, again, not that anything should be shocking us any longer in this chapter but Lot is lingering. says he's lingering, how could that be? Lot was struggling on letting go of the things of the world. See, Lot had too much of the world in him to be truly happy in the Lord. I pray as believers that we have too much of the Lord in us to ever be happy in the world. It's the way it needs to be. There are some Christians that are trying to play both parts. They too, have too much of the world in them to be truly happy in the, in the Lord, but too much of the Lord in them to be truly happy in the world. And there's compromise and there's struggle. They're out of balance. And for Lot... It left him in a dangerous, compromising, and frustrated place here. He's lingering when the Lord is simply trying to rescue him out of this place. But they lead him out, they come, and they're told escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And then here's Lot again in verse 18. Then Lot said to them, please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight and you have increased your mercy which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains lest some evil overtake me and I die. Like at this point, can one of the angels just give him a big old uppercut? Just slap this man already? Like, come on, Lot. See now, verse 20, the city is near enough to flee to you and it is a little one. Please let me escape there, Is it not a little one of my soul shall live? And he said to him, see, I favored you concerning this thing also and that I will not overthrow the city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground, but his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. So although Lot is given clear direction for safety, flee to the mountains and you will be safe there. He's still a man prone to compromise and settling. Settling, not going full on in obedience to what the Lord would have him do, and he's settling. He wants to flee to Zohar. Zohar just simply means little or insignificant. He thinks it's gonna be a better option for him, but it's an option that's gonna be very significant because it's gonna breed much more trouble. See, all through the story a Lot, we learn that there's a path that may seem good and prosperous, but if it's not of the Lord, we need to avoid it. We need to walk in obedience. How many times have we seen families hurt or come to ruin because of a move motivated by wealth or comfort? Maybe a promotion of a job, thinking, oh, well. Maybe a, a parent perhaps takes his family to a place where suddenly there's no good church or a, a place that's, Not conducive to growth. Only to have the family drift further away from the Lord. See, no amount of wealth or career advancement is worth that. And Lot had to find out the hard way. His wife, for one, was never quite happy about all this. In fact, she became quite salty in a lot of this here. Lot's wife looks back. Turns to a pillar of salt. Salt. And Lot's wife became a, a great teaching illustration in the New Testament. Luke chapter 17, verse 32 to 33, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Jesus may have had this in mind when he said in Luke 9, 62, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Just like that song we sang tonight, great song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. When you count the cost, you say, Jesus, I am yours. Man, we need to live abandoned, surrendered to the Lord, and recognize that what we're leaving behind, what we're we're leaving behind will never ever compare or measure up to what we gain in Christ. There's nothing for us any longer. And Lot's wife, Lot's wife, still was longing for Sodom. She looks back and perishes. And then in verse 27, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Now we need to allow Sodom and Gomorrah, and it would have been this for Abraham, but Sodom and Gomorrah stood now as an example of the incredible wrath that we deserved and the incredible wrath that Jesus bore on our behalf. I can kind of sit smug at times and think, Man, those guys were so sinful. Boy, they sure got what they deserved. Yet I was in no better shape. I've simply been delivered and rescued through the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. I deserve nothing better. But yet it's through Jesus that we've been spared. And when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, their ruins would become a powerful teaching tool to Abraham and all of his descendants. There on the border of Israel, the eerie, burnt-out, sulfur-stenched remains of Sodom and Gomorrah permanently testified to what happens to a people who turn away from walking in obedience to the Lord. God doesn't call us to obedience to make us miserable, to test us. He calls us to obedience because He says, this is the way that you're going to truly be blessed in life. This is the way that you're going to walk in joy and peace and blessing. So Sodom and Gomorrah would stand as a great reminder for the nation of Israel of the results when people choose their own way over God's way. Verse 30, Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him. For he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in the cave. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? That Lot pitches his tent towards Sodom. And he moves into a house in Sodom. And ends up in a cave now. Verse 31, now the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is no man on the earth to come into us as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with their father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father." Verse 35, then they made their father drink wine that night also and the younger arose and lay with him and he did not know where she lay down or when she arose or when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the people of Ammon to this day. So the story just becomes even more tragic at this point. Lot was able to get his daughters out of Sodom, but he wasn't able to get Sodom out of his daughters. The work was done. And now they devised a plan. A plan by their own means and their own thinking that was far from God's plan. And we see drunkenness and incest kind of being the final staples of Lot's life. From here on in we won't see Lot any longer in the story through Genesis. This is how it ends for him, drunk and committing incest. And now this one seemingly simple act of moving towards Sodom just becomes even more perpetuated in sin with lasting uh, consequences. For here now the Moabites and the Ammonites are birthed from these circumstances and these two nations are gonna be a thorn in the side of Israel. It was Moabite woman who later seduced the men of Israel to commit immorality. And Ammonites who taught Israel the worship of Molech, including the sacrifice of children. Sad, sad end to the life here. Amazingly, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7, 8 says, and delivered righteous lot. Who is oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for the righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. This indicates that Lot was a saved man. I don't get it, other than to see that God's grace extends a lot farther than I often think. Listen, he may have been in union with the Lord, but he lacked communion. He may have received sonship, but he did not enjoy fellowship with the Lord. He was saved yet so as through fire, as Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 3:15. It's not a fun way to live life when God has so much more for us. And lot stands as an example of that carnal Christian that's being driven more by the flesh than he is of the spirit. And the price he had to pay was immense. Abraham experienced communion and fellowship with the Lord. The Lord was not present with Lot. Abe was sitting at the tent door, in a place, saying he was ready to move on as the Lord directed Directed him, being a sojourner. Lot, sitting at the city gate, puts himself in the place of leadership in a wicked city. Abraham involved his spouse in his worship and devotion. Lot's wife was not mentioned at all until they're fleeing Sodom and she looks back. Abraham was one that taught his children and trained them in the ways of the Lord. As a result, he became the father of a nation that God would work wonders through. Lot lost all credibility with his own children as he stopped being a witness to his family. As a result, some of his family perished and some went on to birth nations that fought against God. We had two choices. We can follow the Lord in obedience, walking in the spirit, or we can kind of carve out our own path being led by the flesh. One leads to blessing, the other doesn't lead to any blessing at all. Oh, may we be those that take that example from Abraham and continue to live that life of faith and believing in the Lord and following him at his word. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come before you tonight, we thank you for your great mercy at work in our lives. How you have come and spared us from that which we deserve. You've saved us with an everlasting love. You've shown grace and goodness towards us. So Lord, we thank you for the life we have in you. And I pray that we would live these lives following obediently before you lord like abraham who is running to see you may we be those that are running just to spend time with you to meet with you to be with you but lord may we also be those that live as that witness in the world lots one that lost all credibility had nothing to show for his time in sodom i pray that that would not be the case with us that we live in this world and be a witness and a light to this world. The world is increasingly getting darker, but may we not shrink back, may we not fear, may we move forward with boldness, with joy in Jesus and shining our light bright for you. Strengthen each and every person here tonight, those watching at home, Lord, we pray that you'll continue to just bring healing to those that are sick, you would bring encouragement to those that are discouraged, Lord, that you provide for those that are in need. Would you just minister to the church and may the church, Lord, be that extension of you ministering to one another and into this world. So we ask this now in your name, Jesus, amen.